Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Sixteenth of October, Saturday. Seven degrees, and the dawn is still an hour away. Flecks of dew on Penny's nose, not a breath of wind. The still air carries distant sounds closer. The jagged gash of the A-46, airliners chasing each other to shiny, antiseptic, unwelcoming terminals and grim-eyed immigration clerks. Closer by, nothing stirs. Silence. Seven degrees, and the sky is washed with fifty shades of mauve. Clouds like bruises swim across an alien sky. The hedges chink with blackbird alarms. A solitary raven cronks on big ragged wings. Crows call back. The pillowing boulders of sheep lying in the tall grass do not move as we pass. Our shadows grow black as the sun climbs. And it's still seven degrees. This is the Narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting canal side on a still October night under a smoky yellow moon. Welcome aboard. I was really hoping you'd come. The kettle's on, make yourself comfortable. And for a while at least, the night is ours. We're now at that time of year, well, in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, where the onrush of night seems almost indomitable. Like the tide race on a shallow beach, the darkness pours into the edges of our days with such dizzying speed. Each day, the sun sets perceptibly earlier, and the dawn drags its heels at the beginning of each morning. Yesterday, it was gloaming. Today, it's pitch black. Torches and our trusty head torches are frequent companions. And I do miss those long views and that carnival of insects on that soft sweep of grassland hill. And I miss, too, the feeling of Penny and I being the only outside visitors to a new world that teems with life and activity. Adam and his canine Eve, wet with the dews of a new creation. However, there is something wonderful about walking across a field, flickering with shadows. Back to the boat, its windows lit with the warm, welcoming light and the kettle warming on the stove, and that wash of contented quietness as you close the bow doors, 
and sit out of the dizzying bowl of night. And it's been a busy time at the moorings recently. The moorhen chicks are now as large as their parents, and only their plumage indicates their youth, a little like their human counterparts. Cyril, the signet, continues his or her, I'm not sure what it is yet, his journey into adulthood, and its parents seem to have adopted Carl as part of their family. Jan and Carl have the mooring right at the end, where a little separate community of ducks roost and forage, contemplated over by the heron on its daily visits. And recently the rainbow flash of the kingfisher has returned. Jan is my go-to oracle on the local wildlife. She might not know anything about the car parks of Stratford, just down the road, but she'll tell you almost to the tree where the owls roost, or the cormorants go, or the lake to which the geese are heading. She's a woman with the right priorities of knowledge. And in the gloaming, Carl sits beside the boat by the water, the ducks and swans clustered round him, content in a shared space, and it's how life should be lived. Thank you all for getting in touch with me, and again, I do love to hear from you. The contact details are in the programme notes below, but you can get in touch with me either on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or just by emailing me at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from you. And my mention in last week's episode of the Vangelis' track, Albedo 0.39, caused quite a bit of chat on Twitter and brought some memories back to Mike Stowe. It's a piece of music that is, in many ways, very much of its time. And I think if that then coincides with the impressionable time when you're growing up in your adolescence, then it is a really powerful piece to just throw you back into those heady days when you were growing up. And that music guru aboard the narrowboat Aikern sent me a link to the Thomas Dolby track that finishes with the clip of the shipping forecast. And I'd heard about it and read about it in a number of books on the shipping forecast, but I'd never actually heard it. Well, Wayne, not only, and I'm assuming this is Wayne, I'm hazarding a guess that this is not from Amanda's record collection, but not only was the link from Wayne's own copy, but it was also on vinyl, and there was a photograph of that vinyl album, which he has with him on Aiken, and it was played on his turntable on his boat. I mean... Can you get any cooler than that in a 1980s sort of way? And last week I mentioned Pete Tuffery's painting of the rooks on a winter's day. Well, he painted another picture that was also inspired by last week's episode featuring the shipping forecast. 
and it was of a trawler in heavy seas under a, a dark, squally sky, and it captures perfectly that very essence of the shipping forecast and all the feelings that it evokes. And it's a wonderful painting. And again, please look up Pete Tuffery's Facebook and Twitter accounts. Um, and I've also posted them on the Nighttime on Stillwater pages as well. They're, they're well worth having a look. And still on the subject of the shipping forecast, it was great to hear from my old friend Tony Bell over in Northern Ireland now, who wrote a lovely email reminiscing of times on land and sea when he had the, the privilege of listening to the forecast as part of the target audience. For a number of his boyhood summers, he used to go for quite a long time. I can't remember how long, but I seem to think it was a matter of a month or two on expeditions to the Scottish islands. And he wrote, I can't quite remember which island it was on. I think it was Mingale, but it's just possible that it was southeast. I can remember us sitting round listening to the shipping forecast with a kind of hushed reverence. There would also be some discussion as to which shipping area we were in. Given that we were nearly always camping close to the sea on those trips, the weather was of great significance, and we took on a suitably earnest air. Tony and I were at the same school together, although he was a couple of years ahead of me. He was in my sister's year. So I didn't really know him that much while at school, but a little later on, after we'd both left, we became good friends. I'm guessing I was about 16 or 17, so you must have been about 18, 19, yeah, Tony? Anyway, when I first got to know him properly, Tony had this old bicycle on which he used to ride wearing this huge old greatcoat from looked like the First World War. But that soon gave way to a little minivan. And we used to go on holidays, camping holidays and expeditions together. Uh, I don't think they were very long, a couple of, couple of nights, but I have incredible memories of them still. And sitting outside our tent in the night with this roaring Tilly lamp. And then he got this Coleman's lamp, which was absolutely dazzlingly bright. And the moths used to dance round it. And we used to talk well into the night, drinking mugs of cocoa. Because that's how we used to roll in those days, eh, Tone? And I have absolutely no idea where we were. I, I know at one point we did go to the Lake District, but other than that, apart from the fact that I have memories of Moorland and Heather, I have no idea where we went. But they were good days. And why I mention that is that one of the topics that Tony would talk about really often were those expeditions to the islands. And it was at those times that Tony really came alive and he painted such a vivid, colourful, evocative, powerful picture of them that it was almost... 
I could, I had the geography of them in my head. I've never been to them. I've never even seen them on the map. And for a while, I couldn't even find Mingale on a map. I didn't quite know where to look. But it was almost as if I'd been there. And the silly thing is, is that when people do mention on the odd occasion about an island like Mingale, I would react and go, oh, yeah, Mingale. And they would then say, oh, you've been there too. And then I'd have to say, "Uh, well, no, I haven't. But I have a friend who has been there, which kind of seems rather lame and weak. But it just feels like I've been there. And Mingale is now a part of my growing up as much, perhaps, as it was of Tony's. And I thank Tony for that. And the other thing that Tony mentioned in that email was a, another aspect of the shipping forecast. And I know it's one which the announcers are aware of because a number of them in their interviews, for example, in Peter Jefferson's book, mention this. And that is about being aware that they create a connection with home and Tony, and I, I hope you don't mind me reading this out, Tony, because but it is it is a, um, a wonderful piece of writing. Um, the other occasion I can recall hearing the shipping forecast was when I was on board the sailing vessel Next Wave. At twenty nine meters at the water line, it had a hull not dissimilar to a trawler. Most of the time, we were not in any sea areas covered by the shipping forecast, but I do recall one night while on watch in the wheelhouse, crossing the Bay of Biscay. We tuned in to the shipping forecast, and while it still summoned up many of the feelings as before, I also found myself engaging with it in a way I never had before. It was in some way very comforting, knowing that the world was still out there, somewhere. Even though we were out of sight of land, and heaving at 20 to 30 degrees on a three-day sail. And that must be such a powerful feeling, that sense of connection. The sweeping turns through the cardinal points of the calendar year, solstice to equinox, equinox to solstice and then sweeping back down again through the autumn equinox, heavy with a sweet scent of apples and lengthening shadows to the winter solstice, have always appeared to have had such a huge pull on the human consciousness. And I've noticed that it's that loose swing shuttling across the autumnal equinox that seems to create the greatest emotional impact on us. I know many people for whom autumn is their most favourite season, and I too look forward to its special grace and beauties. But there is something about that transition from summer to autumn to winter that affects us differently than the transition from winter to spring to summer. And no matter how much we may have longed for summer during those closed-in days of winter's damp darkness. And 
I don't think it's just the obvious, the, the pragmatic ticking off of the phases of an agricultural timesheet, the dance of concentric cycles of crops and livestock. Nor is it just the unconscious prickling of our primeval survival instincts, reminding us that we need to prepare to stock up, to, to check that our shelters are secure and pantries and barns are full. And indeed, for a lot of us, the season's turns don't really make that much difference to our daily lives. But that emotional response is still there, and I can't quite put my finger on this feeling. Why the entrance to autumn should feel so much more serious and significant than the entrance into spring. And I see and hear it not just in myself, but in the words and faces of so many I come across. It's something almost existential, something sparking from deep within us that courses and fizzes through our limbic systems, sharpening our senses to worlds that perhaps we've long since left behind with its forgotten music and abandoned rhythms. And of course, news headlines haven't helped, but again, this is more than that. It's Somehow this sense that the year somehow mirrors our own journeys through time. That device so loved by the medieval authors to use the calendar to mark off the lifespan of an individual. For example, the calendar of shepherds that I quite often quote from seems to strike a resoundingly clear note here. The exuberance and rush of youthful spring and the playfulness of long summers should now be put aside and the serious stuff of life to be considered more fully. And this isn't about some pessimistic morbidity. This is more about the practical wisdom of moving and flowing with the cycles of our landscapes, of taking our cues from the ground upon which we stand, rather than imposing our own values and meaning to it. In many ways, even with all the immense challenges that face us, we still, in these generations, live a fairly charmed life. Unlike our forebears and perhaps our descendants, turning a closed ear to these emotional, existential shifts in our worlds are unlikely to threaten our physical survival, but what other damage may we be doing to ourselves if we ignore their call? Like the year, we continue to grow. And as well as the sunny hillsides filled with activity and life in which we become, we also need time to process this, to reflect, to take stock, to find new ways to develop and cherish the person that 
we are becoming. To adjust. To learn how to fly once more. Watching Cyril the Signet here teaches me so much, or at least reminds me of things so much. The family bond between him or her and his parents is clearly still there, but there are longer times spent foraging away from the parents. And Cyril's more aggressive with Penny than its parents are, which is a good thing. It's finding its own voice. It's being its own person. And the now broad and powerful wings, though I still haven't seen him or her attempt to fly yet, are evidence that for Cyril the world is changing. And that blizzard glare of white feathers of its underwings, still covered by juvenile grey, herald the swan to come. And even for us who are older, there are persons we are still becoming. And our older literature seemed so effortlessly to draw on the metaphor of the season's wheel and the changes felt and seen on the land upon which we stand to, to help us understand and work through our own sense of self and who and what we are becoming. Every movement forward necessarily means a hint of loss, perhaps regret and even grief at what we might now be having to leave behind. But that also can mean that we've not yet fully realised the power of these snow-white wings that we have. Oh yeah, there is danger ahead. And there will always be danger ahead. But we, like the swans and the myriad communities who live around us, are bred for that. That's our environment and that's our home. But there's also so much more. And the leaves turning to gold are the signs that, if we let them grow, there are new leaves waiting to burst. And even now, tight buds of promise are bursting out on their branches. The sight of golden leaves on a sunlit autumn afternoon always reminds me and takes me back to the memory of a couple of youths that I once witnessed in a park in the middle of England. Must be ten years or so ago now. But I often think of them. They left an indelible impression on me, not simply because they appeared almost comically mismatched, but that they epitomised that awkward, jagged, sometimes painful, sometimes exhilarating process of growing and becoming. Warwick Park, afternoon, 1451. 
and our coffee is too hot to drink. So we sit outside in the sun, at one of the plastic tables at the little cafeteria, watching the wisps of steam spiral and flower in the air like ghostly vines. Penny pulls at the lead, restlessly wanting to search, explore, sniff the clutter of litter and drop food that confetti the ground. The sky, built of slate slabs, shatters with the sun and a robin's melancholy piping song of autumn. Two youngsters, maybe just approaching their teens, they stand together on the grass, among the half-crisp, half-damp, fallen leaves. He, in his low-slung gangster jeans and oversized trainers which are left unlaced. A little silver scooter lies folded at his feet. He could be any age, from nine to fourteen. But he carries his small body with the truculent and swaggering self-consciousness of a boy who is no longer wanting to be a boy, and that, perhaps, he is the measure of this bold new world. She, with her hair in a severe 1930s bob and her coat buttoned up to her chin, it looks like she's been rolled up in an oversized duvet with just her head sticking out. She towers over him, lanky, slightly awkward, like a newly appointed governess. There's something old-worldly about her. She could have escaped from one of the books that Mum used to read when she was a girl, and now she is here, standing beneath the chestnut trees in Warwick Park with a young boy by her side. Her hand constantly flies up to cover her mouth and the glitter of braces that it hides. They both seem to know the script by heart, as we do. But the stage is so big and so alien. He steps towards her and hugs her, clasping his hands around her back and waist until she breaks away, collapsing out of his arms, giggling and hiding her mouth and nose in the cup of her hands, her cheeks as red and as excited as the promise of Christmas. She's still giggling when, with ferocious seriousness, he stands on tiptoes and plants a light, brushing kiss upon the side of her cheek. Two children, trying on their parents' wardrobe, finding new bodies that have yet to fit the spirits of fire that they now possess like adults' clothes hanging from a child's shoulders. Innocent? Perhaps not. Fire will always burn, and there is a Prometheus in us all. Moth-born, we are instinctively drawn to the fire of the gods, and what strange and consuming fires burn upon the altars of our adolescence. 
They carve with searing heat the fearful caverns of our adult lives. Our journeys into adulthood often seem to necessitate that turning away from Eden. And the serpent wasn't the only skin shed in that story. And that small boy and girl had no idea what they were on the verge of losing, but they also had no idea what they were about to gain. And isn't that the very essence of growing? Is it really possible to be fully human in Eden? That's a question, I suppose, for theologians to argue about. But the leaves turning gold above the head of these two individuals, filled with such fire of life, heroic and bold in their clumsy tentative bodies, blaze a path out of a childhood into a world that is awaiting them. For a little while they talk together. He picks at the tires of his scooter. Nerves? An attempt to appear casual, in control? She stands, stalk-like, putting all her weight on one leg and fiddling with her buttons the way that girls in school playgrounds have always done through the stream of time itself. And then... They turn and walk away, down the avenue of trees, into a world that is turning gold. And wherever your avenue of golden trees will be taking you, I wish you a peaceful and joyful journey. And this is the narrowboat Erica signing off for the night and wishing you a peaceful, restful night. Good night. Temperature outside, eight degrees. Inside, 26 degrees. Humidity, 94%. Dew point, 7.8 degrees. Wind direction, south. Wind strength, 2 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1017.6 falling. Cloud cover, 76 percent. Cloud ceiling, 18,600 feet. Precipitation, nil. Moon phase, 85.7 percent. Waxing gibbous. Day length, 10 hours 36 minutes 
sunset. 1809. Skycasting. 735.